0: Our scripture reading uh, this morning comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, and uh, I am going to be reading from verses 1 to 9. You can follow along uh, on the screens or in the bulletin or if you have a, a copy of God's word with you as well. So this is God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took his wife Sarah And Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.' So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. This is God's word. Let's pray together. These words of illumination are taken from the Book of Common Prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may, in wisdom, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, when you think about it, uh, the essence of all of this, whether it is worship, whether it is our uh, communal worship of God, or uh, our own personal individual relationship with God, the essence of all of it is this thing that we call faith. Now that word faith is almost a throwaway word if you hang around the church long enough. We use it all the time, we say it all the time, but often it is really hard for us to articulate or even define what we mean by that word faith. Now, the book of of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, helps us by giving us a definition of what faith is. It says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, that's a pretty good definition. It's hard for me to argue with Scripture's own definition of the term called faith. But I often walk away from passages like that and say, well, that sounds really nice, but what does that mean? What does it look like? How does this concept of faith materialize concretely in our everyday lives and what we do each day? And so what the book of Hebrews does is it gives us that definition, but then it offers to us examples of what faith looks like. And one of those examples is the person of Abraham. Now, in Genesis, the the name Abram and Abraham are kind of used interchangeably, so I'm probably going to keep confusing them, but know that I'm talking about the same person as we go along. But the book of Hebrews gives us eight verses about the example of faith that we see in Abraham. So what I'd like to do over the next couple weeks is, is look at snapshots in the life of Abraham Taken from the book of Genesis, Genesis gives Abraham and the story of he and his wife about 15 chapters. Hebrews 11 just sums it up all for us, but what it does in that summation is it celebrates the strength of Abraham's faith. It gives us an example of what a life of faith looks like, but when you go back to the book of Genesis and look at the actual details, when you really dig into the details of his life— you find that at times his faith was incredibly strong, but at other times it was really weak and faltering. And what it reminds me is that his faith is a lot like our faith. If if I'm honest and I look at my own life, I know that at times uh, my faith feels really strong, so strong that I feel like by faith I could move a mountain. But there are often times where my faith feels very weak. There are times where the circumstances of my life feel too big for God, so I somehow need to step in and manipulate the circumstance to help God out. So if you are anything like me, if you feel that at times your faith is strong and at times your faith is weak, then the story of Abraham ought to mean something to all of us. And our passage this morning starts at the beginning of Abraham's journey of faith. And what we find is that it all started with a promise from God and Abraham's response to that promise. So let's, let's first look at the promise and where it all started. You know, when you think about Abraham, he could be one of the most important or central figures in all of human history. I teach a world religions class at a local university, and one of the things that we talk about is that the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and the Islamic faith all look back to Abraham as one of their fathers. Three major faith traditions that look back to this one man saying he was a central figure to their faith. But what's interesting about all of that? is that there was nothing particularly special or unique about this name, this man called Abraham. What we learn is that he was a wealthy tribesman from the area of Mesopotamia, which is where the the Tigris and the Euphrates River came together. Most likely he was a polytheist, meaning that he worshiped many different gods, the the local gods of the land or the, the primitive gods of his culture. Uh, the passage in Genesis 11 tells us that uh, his father was a man named Terah, and that Terah had three sons. So Abram had, had two brothers, and one of his brother died prematurely. And that left uh, Abraham with a nephew named Lot, who he took particular care and concern and responsibility for. So really, the Scriptures tell us there was nothing particularly special about him. And and even as we read his story over 15 chapters, it's kind of underwhelming. One commentator even said that that Abraham's life was virtually empty of all accomplishment. But one of the things that the Scriptures do tell us or does tell us about him is it tells us about his greatest burden— or his greatest sadness. You see, Genesis 11 verse 30 in just kind of a throwaway sort of verse says this, now Sarah, Abram's wife, was barren. She had no children. You see, Abraham had all the wealth and the prosperity that one could imagine in his culture, but even all that wealth and prosperity couldn't cure... His greatest sadness or his greatest burden, because he had no son, he had no child to leave all of his wealth and his heritage to. The family line would die with Abraham in his life and his wife. and this, especially in the ancient world, would have been Abraham's greatest sadness and his greatest burden. And what our passage tells us is that any hope for him having a son was dwindling quickly. Our passage tells us that when God first came to Abraham, that he was 75 years old, and that his wife was nine years younger than him, so most likely around 66 years old. So the writing for Abraham and Sarah was on the wall It didn't look like anything would change about their life and circumstance, and they would have to or would have already come to terms with the burden and the sadness and the disappointment of having no children. And then Genesis 12 comes along, and then God all of a sudden shows up and God begins to speak, and when God begins to speak, he starts making promises to Abraham says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, making your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now imagine how stunning this would have been to Abraham in his circumstance see, Abraham was a polytheist. He probably did not know God at all. He may have heard the stories of Noah and about a God interceding in the life of Noah. He may not have heard that, and even if he did, that was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yet, all of a sudden, God shows up, and God shows up beginning to speak promises to Abraham Later on, God starts to fill out the specifics of these promises, just in case Abraham didn't get it the first time around. The Lord appears to Abraham and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So, so God is promising to him offspring. Though you are behind the proverbial biological eight ball here, you will have an offspring. And not only will you have just one child, that child will become, you will become the father of a great nation. And I'm going to give you land. I will give you a land that is not your own. What God says is, I am promising all these things to you, Abraham, but you need to go. Leave your father's family. Leave everything that you have ever known and go to a place that I will show you. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'm really wondering what is going on here when God shows up. Because God is remarkably unspecific here in his call to Abraham. He says, go to a place, I'm not going to tell you where it is, but I will show you. He says, I will give you offspring that's going to become a great nation. I will give you a land that is your own. And by the way, there are already people living in that land. How is all this going to happen? Abraham had to be thinking, could you let me in a little more on the details of this plan, God? Could you just maybe offer a few more details as to what you are doing here? It made me think a little bit about our culture, and and one of the things that that we all have come to terms with is that solid commitments are a lost art in our culture. Think about that for a minute. Just look at Facebook. When Facebook first came out, you could do these things called events, right? And you you had two options. Someone could invite you to an event, and the option you had was to say yes or no. But now we have many more options. You can declare that uh, you maybe could come to this event or you are interested in coming to this event. And why is this? How has our culture gotten this? Well, we've gotten this place because we like to keep our options open, right? Maybe something better will come along. Maybe we'll commit once we hear a few more of the details of this plan. So if Abraham had been a product of our culture, maybe he would have replied to God like this, well, God, I'm interested in your plan, or maybe I will follow your plan. Let me just make sure there isn't another God who comes along who makes some better promises than you do. After all, I don't want to really limit my options here, God. Or maybe he would say even yes to God and then later send a text or an email in the middle of the night, ultimately backing out of the plan. But that's not at all what Abraham does here. The the passage tells us that very simply what Abraham's response was. Verse 4, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Imagine just for a moment the radical faith possessed by Abraham to immediately hear the promises of God and respond in absolute and complete obedience. Friends, this wasn't just simple, casual obedience. This wasn't some watered down, low risk, low reward faith. This was leaving everything that was known and familiar based on the promises from a God that Abraham previously did not know. One commentator said this, "...the speech of God to this barren family then is a call to abandonment, renunciation, and relinquishment. It is a call for a dangerous departure from the presumed world of norms and security." And to take this one step further, to take Abraham's example one step further, is to be reminded that God calls you and I to respond to him in faith as well. He calls us to respond in faith just as Abraham did. Because what the gospel tells us is that Jesus, he speaks into our hearts he comes making promises, and He calls us to go in radical obedience to Him. He often asks us to step onto a dangerous road where we don't know all the outcomes or the direction we are often going in. He asks us to step away often from what is safe and comfortable, from what feels secure and normal to us. He asks us to step into a direction that may seem ludicrous to all those people who are around us. He calls us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified, who died, who was resurrected from the dead for our sins. And when we step out in faith, we do what might be the most radical thing culturally, we decide that we will no longer call the shots. We will no longer provide the direction for our lives because now God calls the shots. God provides the direction. You see, Abraham had every reason practically to ignore the call of God in his life. He was wealthy, he was prosperous, he was safe, and he was secure. But what the scriptures tell us is that by faith he went out not knowing where he was going, trusting in the promises of a God whom he had just met. The passage tells us that there were just quickly a couple of byproducts to this faith. The first we read about is in verses 7 to 8, and what the passage tells us that is that as Abraham journeyed, he built altars wherever he traveled. First he built an altar in Shechem where God first visited him, and, and next the passage tells us he traveled to Bethel, and once he arrived in Bethel, one of the first things that he did there was he built an altar to God. What it tells us is that with every step of faith, Abraham worshiped the God who had become his friend. You see, a life of worship Is a natural byproduct of a life that is lived in radical faith. Eugene Peterson said this Abraham's relation to God was not mercantile or utilitarian. He wasn't taking pains to stay on good terms with God so he might get a good inheritance. His altar building doesn't seem to have been an insurance policy against disaster. His altars were spontaneous acts of friendship and gratitude, expressions of respect. You see, worship was the spontaneous response to faith and friendship. But there's one other byproduct to this faith that takes the form, in some ways, of a commissioning, and it's easy to miss, but you see it in verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. You see, a byproduct of a life that is lived by faith is a life that is a blessing to other people. See, we can fall into the trap of focusing so much on what we get from God in the promises and the realities of salvation but we can easily forget that we aren't supposed to hoard those things just for ourselves. You see, they are all given to us so that we can be a blessing to others. So friends, a life of faith tangibly looks like a life that is committed to worship that is a blessing to to others. A life characterized by the worship of God and the blessing of others is a life that is designed by faith that is saving. So the question is, what about you? What about me? Do our lives reflect this radical sort of faith? And if they do, it will naturally look like lives given to worship lives committed to blessing others. We really are given this remarkable picture in the life of Abraham. He was promised much by a God he barely knew. In faith, he stepped out into what was unknown. And this remarkable faith tangibly showed up in worship and the blessing of others. So the question is, where did it come from? Where did this incredible, remarkable, radical faith come from? How did such a remarkable faith show up in a man who seemed so unremarkable on paper? Well, the answer is, is that it came from the same place that all saving faith comes from. It was a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace that you are saved by faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. So may God give all of us this remarkable gift of faith. Let's pray.